south of the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is episode 334, covering the week of November 14th through November 18th, 2022. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, like our Gab and our Facebook page, and subscribe to our YouTube page. Our YouTube channel is a great channel because we do all kinds of things with it. Not only do you get this podcast on the channel, but you also get our lectures that we have from summer schools and scholars conferences and other things we've done. We also have our Abbeville U videos there. There is a tremendous amount of great stuff on the YouTube channel, and it's all free of charge. So you get all of that great content for not one penny out of your pocket. Now, that said, if you do like those videos and you like the podcast, and you like the website, and you like our conferences, and our Zoom webinars, and all the things that we do at the Abbeville Institute, please consider a tax-deductible donation to the Abbeville Institute. It is the end of the year. People are making their tax preparations for 2022, so if you want to contribute to our mission financially, we do appreciate every dollar you can send us. Our opponents have virtually unlimited funds, and we operate on a very shoestring budget. So, your contributions help keep everything we do going. If it's $5 a month or $10 a month, what is the Southern tradition worth for you? And I, and I think that's something we have to consider. Do you have an extra 5 or $10 a month to help us in our mission to explore what's true and valuable in the Southern tradition? If you do, we appreciate it. And you can go to our website. Just click on the Donate tab at abbevilleinstitute.org. That's A-B-B-E-V-I-L-L-E, institute.org. The donate button, click on that, and of course, you can contribute to our mission. You can also give us an email address while you're there. You'll get a free ebook, Exploring the Southern Tradition, and you get our daily dose of Dixie Monday through Friday. Uh, and that's the way we communicate with you. Again, so please don't unsubscribe from that email list. We do send emails typically once a day, sometimes twice a day. Uh, we, we use that to communicate with you about upcoming events, like our 20th anniversary event, which is April 13th through 16th. 2023 at beautiful Callaway Gardens Resort in Pine Mountain, Georgia. It's a beautiful place. We're going to talk about the Southern tradition, all the Southern tradition, a reflection on 20 years at the Institute, and uh, it's going to be a grand time. So if you want to come out and see us in person, that's a great opportunity to do it. Again, information about that is available on our website. Just go to the events section of our website and you'll find that there. So you can sign up there, of course, rent your room and See us in April 2023 at Callaway Gardens in Pine Mountain, Georgia. Uh, we also have abbevilleacademy.org. If you've missed any of our Zoom webinars, you can pick them up there. Uh, lots of great ways to support the Institute. But as always, rate, review, subscribe to this podcast. Give it that five-star review. Leave a text review where you can. If you're watching on YouTube, click on the little super thanks button under the video or leave a comment. Those things help, of course, bump the algorithm, and the super thanks button is a little way to donate if you want to do that. You can shop at Amazon uh, Smile. You just make us your preferred uh, charity for Amazon, and every time you shop at Amazon Smile, you give us a few pennies. So lots of great ways to support the Institute, and we do appreciate all of it. So all of that said, let's talk about the material for the week um, and kind of give you an update on what we're doing for the rest of the year. Uh, this particular episode uh, coming out this week, the week of November 14th through 18th, Next week, of course, is Thanksgiving. We'll have a very brief, and I mean brief, podcast next week talking about the couple of articles we're going to run next week. And then we have about three weeks left, three to four weeks, before we will be taking a break for a couple of weeks at the end of the year. We do that every year. 
we have a couple of weeks off for the Christmas holiday. So um, we have about uh, maybe four podcasts left for the rest of the year. We have about four weeks left of content for the rest of the year. So um, our, our year is winding down. And But, I mean, still so much is going on. It uh, doesn't mean that uh, we're not going to stay engaged. And, of course, we will probably have some material on the website in those couple of weeks. We don't do much. Um, we'll have some greatest hits, maybe, of some of the things that uh, that we've done before that you might have missed or maybe need to read again. Uh, so we will be doing things like that. But uh, overall, it is a slowdown period for us. Uh, we'll be back with a vengeance in January of 2023. So, uh, But again, a lot of things are happening. And this week speaks to that. Uh, we talked about the Arlington Memorial, Arlington Confederate Memorial last week. And uh, we ran a little video on that that uh, we made. Uh, it's about a seven, eight minute video on the history of the memorial and what's going on there. More could be done with that. I mean, we could have done a, a, a short documentary on that particular monument. It's a fantastic work of art, a really important part of American history. And what we have to understand what's going on in America right now is not necessarily an attack on the South per se, even though that's, that's ultimately what's happening. But it's more of an attack on reconciliation. When you go back and look at the book Race and Reunion by David Blight, it, this book is a is a monumental work, not that it's any good, but that people have been persuaded by it and then, of course, have done a lot with it since. So Race and Reunion by David Blight, of course, Blight teaches at Yale. And uh, Blight wrote this book as an attack on reconciliation. In fact, if you look at the epilogue in that book, the last, the last part of the book, he talks about this. He talks about the 50th anniversary commemoration at Gettysburg in 1913. He talks about things that were going on around the United States in the 19-teens. And how essentially, in his mind, this was a terrible event. Because what happened was, everything that the war was really about, which of course was going after white supremacy and slavery, was completely forgotten. Swept under the rug. Nobody focused on that anymore. Nobody cared about that. All it was about was the southern side of the war and how the South essentially won the war. And this is something that leftist historians and even progressive historians on the left and the right, it doesn't matter if you're talking about Alan Gelzo or David Blight, this is essentially what they say. The South won the war intellectually because they were able to wiggle out of the real cause of the war, which was, of course, slavery. And racism. This is what they've they've decided that they needed to go after. So the key understanding of what's happening right now is really not the war itself. It's the post-bellum activities, supposedly, of Southerners that were disingenuous and willing accomplices in the North who understood that the war was about things they weren't saying it was about, but yet were willing to agree to because they were more interested in resuming the Union and getting back to business and having a robust economy than all the issues that the war really should have settled. This is the whole point of Eric Foner. It was an unfinished revolution. The revolution needed to be consummated. It needed to be finished. It needed to be complete. And to complete it would, would have taken a French revolutionary-style tactic. In other words, the South really needed to be expunged and purged. All these Southerners that would have 
that created obstacles to this real motivation behind the war, which is doing all the grand things that the war should have done, which was uh, remaking American society as as uh, Thad Stevens talked about, reconstruction really was complete restructuring of America. All of that should have been done. And when it wasn't done, we had a problem. And how it should have been done, of course, is that all these people should have been eliminated. I mean, really, I think that David Blight and Eric Foner and uh, Alan Gelzo even would have been fine with mass executions of Southerners after the war was over. They would have been fine with an execution of Jefferson Davis, Robert E. Lee, any Southern generals, any Southern political leaders. They all should have been taken out. And they all should have been taken out because if you had done that, you would have, you would have eliminated any of this quote-unquote lost cause-isms that we have a problem with, that we wrestle with today. You would have shown a heavy hand. And of course, that would have prevented some of the problems we have in America right now. We would have had this revolution and it would have been completed. Now... Blight will say things like, well, reconciliation is noble, but uh, wait a second here. I mean, it's only noble to an extent. Uh, we should have continued what was happening in the 1860s and really not been that interested in reconciliation because it set us back. You see, what's happening now with the removal of Confederate monuments, with the removal of Confederate iconography, whatever it is, What's happening with all of that is this is these people are now determining that that should have never happened to begin with, and all these things needed to go because reconciliation in itself was wrong. This is why Richard Weaver's book, The Southern Tradition at Bay, is so important. He's writing about the post-bellum period. And I remember talking to, uh, to uh, Clyde Wilson about this, and he said, you know, if I had to go back and do it again, I might want to focus more on the postbellum South and the antebellum South. Because the postbellum South, look, all the, all the uh, lefties have figured this out. The postbellum South is where the real battle is taking place. Now, what's interesting about all of that, of course, is that these people weren't lying. Southerners weren't lying when the war was over. In fact, if you go back and look at what Jefferson Davis said before the war and what Jefferson Davis said after the war about what caused the war, what the war was about, etc., etc., he said the exact same things in 1850 as he said in 1881. There's really no difference. Southerners didn't change their tune from the 1850s to the 1880s. They said the same thing. And what's fascinating about that is one of the most important books on uh, the Slave Power Thesis. It was actually written in 1862 by a Brit. His name was Carnes. Carnes is attacking what became known as the Lost Cause in 1862. Now, why would he do that? Why would Carnes, in 1862, which is during the war, start framing the argument as the slave power and attacking things like the use of tariffs, or political economy, or the Constitution, all of these things that Southerners would talk about. Why is he attacking that in 1862? Well, because people were already saying it in 1861. So in other words, what Carnes is really doing, and this is a key to understanding this period of time, what Carnes is really doing is going after Northern Democrats who are making arguments that would essentially become the lost cause when you get to the post-bellum, 1865, 66, 67, 
Southerners weren't saying anything different in the late 1860s, 1870s, 1880s, 1890s than Northern Democrats had said during the war itself. Go back to Clement Vallandigham's speech in 1861, Executive Usurpation, and he tells you this is all about uh, these other things besides slavery. I mean, slavery is an issue. They, they, nobody, Jefferson Davis, Alexander Stevens, Bledsoe, none of these people ever said slavery wasn't an issue. They all said it was an issue. But it was an issue within the context of a larger struggle for supremacy in the government and control of the meaning of the Constitution. So this is the thing that's going on. And that, Marliament, Marliament, that monument in Arlington... That monument in Arlington symbolizes, in a beautiful way, what Southerners have been saying for years. And this is why it has to go. And so we published on Tuesday a piece, um, a Jewish perspective on the Arlington Confederate Monument. This is also the lost part of this. If this was a leftist Jew, uh, if Jewish American, if this was a leftist Jewish cause... The Anti-Defamation League would have been all over it. You would have had protests in front of this. You would have had things happening that would have, you know, this is this is anti-Semitism. This is an attack on American Jewry. This is this is an important stand to make. But because Moses Ezekiel was a conservative, quote unquote, and a Southerner, and worse, he fought for the Confederacy. There's not a peep coming out of these people. That shows you, at the end of the day, what this is really all about. It's all about politics. Right? And when you look at what Ezekiel put on the monument, it was in line with what people, white and black, had said about the war. In fact, as I point out in the video last week, Booker T. Washington had made the case that the loyal slave was not a myth. He, he made the case in his book, Up From Slavery. Now, of course, he says in this book, everyone wanted to be free. Everyone wanted their independence. Everyone wanted those things. And I don't think there's anybody that would deny that now. There, there, nobody in 1906 or 1914 would deny that. But what he does say is that slaves in the South were willing to lay down their lives to defend the property and homestead of the place where they lived from aggression. And that's exactly what Ezekiel put on the monument. And of course, we also talked about black confederates or at least the monument addresses black Confederates. There's a black man marching off to war with white Southerners. This happened all the time. People know it. But of course, to leftists like Ty Sigerly or Kevin Levin or some of these other people, Kevin Levin's book, Searching for Black Confederates, is one of the worst books ever produced on the topic because essentially the whole book is semantics. Well, I'm searching, what he really should say is searching for black Confederate soldiers. And he, he narrowly defines the term soldier as an officially recognized military member of the Confederacy. Now, we know we had these in March of 1865. But before that point, there were thousands of black Confederates, people that supported the war in various ways. That would have made them Confederates. So it's, it's, it's all semantics. Well, because the Confederacy never said there were soldiers, because the Confederacy never recognized these people as soldiers, they weren't really soldiers, and thus they weren't black Confederates. Or the statement is made, well, these people were enslaved. Well, the easiest response to that is simply, if a person is conscripted 
do they have a choice? So all these northerners who were conscripted to go off and fight in the south, they had no choice. They're conscripted. If they don't go, they can go to jail or they can be shot if they're deserters. I mean, so are they are they any freer than someone who's forced to go off to war as a slave? I mean, what's the difference? When you're conscripted, you become a slave to the United States Army or to the army that you're conscripted into. It doesn't matter what army it is. You are a conscript. You are a slave, and you will do what they tell you to do. So what is the difference? Again, he doesn't. these people don't really recognize this because I guess they lack the intelligence to do it. They can't really understand these things. So, uh, But the, the piece by Jack Shule, who's uh, actually producing a film on Jewish Confederates, uh, and their impact and their, their presence in the Confederacy. It's really great. And, of course, Paul Gottfried was also involved in this. And Paul Gottfried uh, and Richard Hines wrote a wonderful piece on uh, the monument at Chronicles Magazine, which I will talk about on my own podcast in a couple of weeks. But um, this, is, this was an important letter. It was an open letter about Jewish interest in this particular monument, and we should take that seriously. This is, an, if again, if it was any leftist cause, this would have been front page on the Washington Post or the New York Times or any of these places, but because it's a Confederate monument, and because Moses Ezekiel was a Confederate, because he went to VMI and he fought at the Battle of Newmarket, he was very pro-Southern, it's no longer considered to be a case of anti-Semitism or anything like that, but because it's not, I mean, you can't, Northerners can't be anti-Semitic. Northerners can, I mean, they're just doing this for the good of all Americans, and this guy was wrong. Again, I mean, if it was the roles reversed, you would have had this as front page news everywhere. So go out and read that piece about um, the Jewish perspective on, on the Arlington Monument, and this actually fits in with the current political climate anyways. The first piece of the week by uh, Mark Andrew Holacek is about his experience at Poplar Forest recently. Poplar Forest, of course, is Jefferson's, one of his uh, homes that he designed himself. And it was kind of like a vacation retreat for Jefferson. Got away from Monticello to Poplar Forest. Well, Holacek was invited to go on a tour and he brought his books with him. He's written about 20 books, I think, on Thomas Jefferson. And we've had... Uh, We've had Dr. Holachak on, on our webinar. We've had him at a conference. Uh, he's a Jefferson scholar, and he's very hard on the Jefferson-Hemings myth. Um, he calls it a myth. He says there's no conclusive evidence this ever happened. The, the data doesn't really support it at all. Uh, this is just another way for the left to go after Jefferson and, of course, by default, the South. And so he talks about his experience with uh, the... The, the people at Poplar Forest and how he went on the tour and he would make comments on the tour. And by the end of that, uh, he was essentially told that he was no longer welcome there. And he was invited along. Now, he calls it you know, free, uh, suppression of free speech at Poplar Forest. And this is what you're having in historical sites now around the United States. It doesn't matter whether it's Poplar Forest or another uh, place, you know, another historic site. It doesn't really matter. The... Uh, the fact is we've got interpretation now at these historic sites that's really focused on uh, telling an anti-reconciliationist agenda or going after you know people like Jefferson or Madison or Washington, whoever it is, for their indiscretions or for their, their 
foils rather than, or their faults rather than, uh, you know, what made them great men. In fact, if you take a tour of Monticello, you're not going to hear much about Jefferson anymore. You're going to hear more about the people that worked there than Thomas Jefferson. And while, of course, that's an interesting part of Monticello, what was labor like? What was, you know, what was life like at Monticello? It wouldn't have been anything without Thomas Jefferson. If Thomas Jefferson had not lived there, it's just another house. But because Thomas Jefferson did live there, and because of who Thomas Jefferson was, that's what makes the place important. Not the fact that it was a plantation in the South. These places are interesting because of the people that actually lived there who had the resources to put them there. Mount Vernon, Monticello, you know, Montpelier, it doesn't really matter. Um, it doesn't matter what house you're talking about. They're only important because of the people that lived there as members of the founding generation or even across the South, or you could say in the North too, the people that actually lived these places. So we miss that in these new interpretive uh, programs at these locations, Williamsburg, wherever it is, there, there's a reason why all of these places are suffering in attendance because people don't want it shoved down their throat when they go to enjoy a historic site and all they're going to get is left-wing politics. People don't like it. They want to simply hear about what made this great, why this is a great place. They don't want to be beat over the head with stuff that they're beat over the head with all the time about how bad everything is, about how awful Americans are, about how awful this was or this person was. They don't want to hear that stuff. And I don't think leftists have got that yet. They haven't understood this point yet. They don't want, people don't want to hear it. And so when they get tired of hearing it, and this means they get tired of history because that's all they think history is, it's all the stuff that's making us feel bad about everything. Well, then why you even go do it anymore? If it's not about uh, the thing that made this great or what's really interesting about this, if you have to throw politics into all of it, well, why even go do it anymore? You can get that on, just go on social media. Turn on the television. History is an escape. It always was. It was always an escape. And it wasn't to pass value judgments on people. It was to say, this is how people live. This is what it was. Live with it. Deal with it. I, look, I, I became fascinated with history when I was 12 years old and I went to Jamestown. I mean, it's I, I tell this story all the time. I went to Jamestown. And at that time... There wasn't any of this interpretation like we have now. It was just a cool place. I mean, look at this cool fort and all the way these people lived. And you had, you know, all this stuff that was interesting and unique. It was different. It was an escape. It was like going, it really was going back in time. A whole nother world. And there wasn't all of the uh, political interpretation there. And so it was a fascinating thing. And then, of course, I've had uh, friends tell me, well, they really got interested in history when, when they went to this historic site or that historic site. Because at the time, when, when I was growing up, before really the 1990s and the 2000s, historic sites were just that. You went to the historic site as an escape, as a way to reflect and look at the way people lived and essentially uh, come away with an appreciation for where we are now, but also to understand, I mean, this is... This is an amazing part of human experience. To go to Jamestown and see the fort and understand what these people went through, it's, a, it's an amazing thing. Same thing with Williamsburg, anywhere else. It's a beautiful town. Williamsburg's a beautiful town. So we miss all of that with modern wokeism. 
I think that's the saddest part about it. Uh, but we had some, I mean, those two pieces were interesting, of course. Uh, you know, Valerie Protopappas points out in her piece on Friday, uh, the one of the main things, what's going on here, of course, is centralization. And the, the blame for all of this goes back to Lincoln and the Republican Party of the 1860s. So this is what the, the anti-reconciliationist people want to bring back. They want to resurrect the effort of the Republican Party of the 1850s and the 1860s. And that would be centralization, a loss of federalism, a loss of state powers. That was the turning point. We don't, we don't recognize that, but I mean, Alan Gelzo and his pronouncements that Lincoln was the greatest American ever to walk the face of the earth and uh, you have, I, I would say that, you know, David Blight and Eric Foner wouldn't be far behind that. Of course, they would they would fault Lincoln for being, you know, having racial views that aren't in line with modern Americans. But they would certainly think that Lincoln was very, very important and the most important of all Americans. And so when you look at what happens here, right, the centralization, the loss of federalism, the Confederate monument at Arlington, Jefferson, all represent the antithesis of that. It's about getting rid of defiance. It's about getting rid of opposition to their one-size-fits-all cultural Marxist agenda. You can't have cultures. You can't have these things that gum up the works. You can't have that because that would be dangerous to their political agenda. And when the, uh, Lee, I think it was the Lee Monument, I can't remember if it was the Lee Monument or the Jackson Monument in Richmond was unveiled. You had one of the orators say this. The monument represents defiance. It represents defiance to one-size-fits-all government. It always will represent that. It will always be there to say that federalism was right. This is what the progressives cannot stand and do not like about all of this stuff. And so when you look at Bill Watkins' piece on Wednesday about the Ninth Amendment, the entire restructuring and re, re, uh, reinterpretation of the Ninth Amendment is essentially that. And he talks about the Dobbs decision and how this is a distortion of the Ninth Amendment. Essentially, the Ninth Amendment was there to enforce the federal nature of the United States and the powers of the states. Even progressives like Hugo Black and uh, centralizers like Joseph Story recognized this. Sometimes Joseph Story got some things right. I have a problem with Joseph Story and how when he wrote his commentaries on the Constitution because he inverted the the ratification process. But more than anything, they point out that the Ninth Amendment was not there to create some type of judicial activism or to come up with rights that were just kind of you know, out floating in the ether somewhere. You know, we just have these rights that are just, we're just going to create them. It wasn't about any of that. It was about ensuring that the federal nature, the Ninth and the Tenth Amendment worked together to ensure that the federal nature of the United States, that the states and the powers of the general government, more importantly, the powers of the general government, were not enlarged beyond what they said they were in the document. The powers of the general government. The states were a whole other thing. 
That's important. States had powers that the general government did not. And Bill Watkins, of course, is, a, is a, an attorney. Strong legal mind when it comes to originalism, and he's very good at these things. And I, I encourage you to go read this piece because it gives you some ammunition that you need uh, when you are uh, uh, discussing these issues with people, friends and foes alike, about the Ninth Amendment. We have a lot of people even on our side, and he's attacking this left libertarians, who, you know, libertarians would supposedly be kind of on our side, but the left libertarians believe in expansive interpretation of the Ninth Amendment. They believe in expansive interpretation of the Fourteenth Amendment. And of course, that fits right in with Eric Foner and David Blight and all the others. That's the, that's the revolution, you see. It all goes back to that. And this is where Valerie Protopapas is, and so it goes. It all goes back to Lincoln and the 1850s and 60s Republicans and what they really wanted to do to America. So one of the things we do at the Institute is point this stuff out. Point out where the turning point was. We point out you know, these kind of things. And of course, celebrate the South. The, this piece uh, on, on the Confederate monument is a real celebration of Moses Ezekiel and who he was and why this is important for the South and for America. It's exploring what's true and valuable in the Southern tradition. And then, of course, we had the last thing we'll talk about this week is a, another work of fiction, or at least literature, uh, Brandon Meeks. He says all these stories are true. I mean, these are all things he went through as a kid or a little bit older. But Brandon Meeks, the bootlegger, and uh, this his experiences growing up in, in Arkansas and uh, Louisiana, and, um, the things that he saw and did and uh, this is just a it's just a funny piece uh, about a kid and having to go in and um, begin cash to go buy you know non bonded liquor or bonded liquor and uh, <laughs> the the run in that he had in doing that and we have to understand that bootlegging still is a big business in the South but it used to be a very big business in Appalachia of course um, we even have there's shows on it now and there's where people are out to you know, bootlegging liquor or making liquor uh, on the on the side, and and um, it speaks to a part of Southern culture that's not always savory, uh, but it does produce things like NASCAR. Um, but there are there's the the uh, the renegade side to uh, to the South, and and um, again the monuments we talked about is a symbol of defiance to federal authority or what would be unconstitutional federal authority. We have to understand that. You know, the general government knew that it couldn't pass any legislation outlawing liquor without an amendment. This is an amazing admission by the general government. We had to have a constitutional amendment to do it, but of course it still does these kind of things with all kinds of other subjects, topics in America, makes them illegal without an amendment. So by default, recognizing that it would take an amendment to the Constitution to do this invalidates virtually everything else the general government does in these areas. That's something that people don't point out. We had we had to have an amendment to do this, but yet we don't need an amendment to do this or don't need an amendment to do this. They're the same thing. It's the same thing. So uh, that's a fascinating part of American constitutional history. And again, Watkins and all the things we do with that and originalism and decentralization, federalism, all this is part, of course, of our mission at the Institute to explore what's true and valuable in the Southern tradition. But we're talking about culture and 
And uh, Southern literature, of course, is an important part of that. Art, Southern art, music, all these things make the South a very beautiful place. Complex, not always right, um, not always on, not, not always doing things that are savory, but certainly an interesting place, nevertheless. All right. Well, we hope you enjoyed these pieces. Again, we've got a very brief podcast next week. We're only doing two articles the week of Thanksgiving, and it'll be about those two articles. Very brief. But until next time, good day. Good day.